You're tuned in to Atlanta Fringe Audio, the podcasting network of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. Want to win a couple of free tickets to the Atlanta Fringe Festival June 5th through 11th? Enjoy Fringe Audio and fill out the Fringe Audio crossword puzzle. It's that easy. 10 winners will be selected. Check out the description box for all the details or visit atlantafringe.org fringe dash audio. Now for the show. It's for general audiences. It may contain mild language, but has no overt violent or sexual content. The Year of Extraordinary Travel, brought to you by Leafmore Studios, is rated general audience. I am so glad you're listening. I can't believe you're listening. (laughs) Thank God you're listening. Uh, This is interesting to share the show of my book as a podcast. I mean, it's like we're having a conversation, except I'm the only one doing the talking. Of course, if you were in the theater with me, you wouldn't be talking to me unless you were heckling me. And... We are missing the photography, but I took over 10,000 photos. So um, if a slide was up for three seconds per photo, that would add roughly eight hours. So yeah, at the core of everything, there's a book and books are read. So let's start there. The Year of Extraordinary Travel by Becca McCoy. In 2018, I got divorced and turned 40. Much of the, you know, actually, before we begin at the beginning, we should talk about the now. Uh, The COVID pandemic rerouted my life. You know, there's times in your life when you transition between things, changing relationships, jobs, where you live, where your kids are in relation to you. And oftentimes our identities are inextricably linked to those things. The COVID pandemic forced a transition in every aspect of my life simultaneously. 2018 wasn't just five years ago. It was a whole other identity. But in 2018, I rerouted my own life by choice. If you know me, and if you don't, you will in an hour. I don't transition between things particularly gracefully. But what I can always do is find momentum. I will find the thing I need to do because I don't know what else to do. In 2018, it was creating this experience. In 2021, it was creating the book of the experience. In 2022, it was creating the show of the book of the experience. 2023, it was creating the podcast of the show of the book of the experience. So yeah, um, it was an extraordinary year times four. In 2018, I got divorced and turned 40. Much of the personal upheaval to follow was mollified when I was offered an opportunity to travel. It became grander than I ever imagined. September September 2018. New York City, New York. London, England. Normandy, France. Rouen, Le Havre. (laughs) Production values. I stayed on a friend's couch in Queens at a hotel in Gatwick Airport, a bed and breakfast in London's Bloomsbury, a privately owned chateau in Normandy, a boutique hotel in London's Soho, a residence club on New York's Upper West Side, and a friend of a friend's brownstone in Brooklyn. I traveled by plane, taxi, public transit, boat, privately owned car, train, high-speed rail, and on foot. I traveled alone to New York and London, and met a friend in London who traveled with me to and from France. Miles traveled, 8,522. So, Becca, what exactly are you doing? I had no idea. When I tell you I had no idea, 
I mean it. I just listed staying in like six different places in three countries, half of which were people's couches. So in the fall of 2018, I was asked by a colleague and dear friend to do some developmental work on her new musical. I had to get a lot of ducks in a row to say yes, but I truly believed it was a singular opportunity that would lead to something. And while I was positioned in these places I love with concentrated time, I just went all in and soaked up everything I could. But no, in September 2018, I didn't have a plan. I just got on a plane. The first time I boarded a plane alone and arrived at a destination where no one was waiting to greet me was my semester abroad in London, sophomore year of college, fall of 1998. The confidence, perspective, and joy afforded me by that experience were life-altering. In the fall of 2018, I was in New York City with room in my work schedule to get away for a week. I didn't just think about how much I'd love a 20th anniversary trip to London. I got on a plane. I booked a room at a bed and breakfast just a block or so from the flat where I lived for my semester abroad. I figured it would make for easy orientation, and shockingly, I did remember how to navigate my way around. I only had a few days in London, split into two chunks with a trip to France, surprise, in between. My itinerary was a frantic whirlwind of familiar and favorite things, including seeing four shows in three days, the highlight of which was Ian McKellen in King Lear. I mean, London theatre has always been an embarrassment of riches, and I've seen more theatre in London than I have anywhere else, but it was on this trip that I had the most powerful moment in a theatre. I got to see Ian McKellen play King Lear, and I know you think period, end of story, but while his performance was spectacular, what was revelatory was his curtain call. The performance ended, the audience rose to their feet, and the cast returned to the stage for an ensemble bow, and then they all began to disperse, including Ian McKellen, to the point that I was like, is that ensemble bow it? But just as the cast cleared the stage, Ian McKellen reached upstage center, and he turned back around to face us. And there was nothing forced, nothing artificial, Nothing egotistical about it. With that twinkle in his eye and a slight smile, he strode back downstage, and he seemed to be taking in every single one of us. As our cheers and applause effusively thanked him, he was thanking us for this moment, for the life he's been given, all while existing unapologetically in the reality of exactly who he is, and I spontaneously wept. I was in the presence of a legend. Holy merde, my friend lives in a chateau in France. The professional opportunity in New York was developmental theater work for and with my talented composer friend, her arrival in New York was delayed, and at the time that I would be in London, she would be home in her chateau in France. Well, if you're in London, you're just a short train ride from Paris, and if you're in Paris, you're just a few short train rides from Normandy, so I was practically there anyway, and it just made sense to go to the chateau in France, where my friend lives. I took French in high school, but am ashamed to say it has atrophied. My friend is a polyglot, and her French is outstanding. I had been in and out of Paris once, but never spent concentrated time in France, and certainly not in a private home. We built a fire first thing every morning, and sat by it at night, talking or watching movies. We cuddled our kitty cats and sang at the piano in the drawing room. We walked the grounds and shook the apple tree so cider and apple butter could be made. We drove to the beach on the Normandy coast and ate ice cream walking along the shore. We went to Rouen, walking cobblestone pathways and seeing the cathedral Monet painted over 30 times. And we would still have New York. <laughs> oh, we would have New York, all right. 
um, <clears throat> production values. October 2018, New York City, New York. I stayed in a residence club on the Upper West Side and a sister of a friend's apartment on Riverside Drive, plus one night on the couch of a very famous person who shall remain nameless. I traveled by plane, taxi, public transit, rideshare, ferry, and on foot. I traveled alone until a friend met me for my final few days, and we traveled back home together. Miles traveled, 1010. So, the very famous person who shall remain nameless? <laughs> okay, um... So, when my composer friend is in New York, she stays with her godmother, and between performing another musical for the same friend and this experience, I'd met her godmother, been in her home several times. And on this, New Yorkiest of New York nights, we went from there to an opening at Donna Karen's gallery. That Donna Karen, D-K-N-Y, Donna Karen, this night already qualifies as unusual for me. Donna's Greenwich storefront has a very unassuming facade, and you walk through a small boutique of home decor, and then there's a door that leads into an impossibly huge two-story gallery. And there we had a glass or two or so of champagne. It was Donna's birthday, and I thought that was the end of the night. I'm 40. But my friend, who is much younger than me, wanted to take me to a hookah bar she likes nearby. Well, I've never been to a hookah bar before, but it turns out that a beautiful, young polyglot who speaks Arabic fluently will result in a lot of free things coming to your table, particularly drinks. And in this boozy hookah smoke haze, the people at the table next to us become our best friends. And they suggest that we all go to a nightclub so we get into an Uber with our best friends, and I am drunk. We arrive at the club. Our best friend pays the cover. A shot makes it into my hand, and that little voice that tells you that you have probably had enough and you should stop is thoroughly silent. I remember the fog, uh, the lights. I remember dancing in a big crowd of people. I remember more drinks. Then my friend grabs my arm and pulls me toward a velvet-roped staircase. We're following this gorgeous woman in a tight dress with short okra hair who leads us up into a VIP section overlooking the main dance floor. And in the center of this curated collection of beautiful people and expensive champagne is the birthday boy. I don't know who he is. I am drunk. I vaguely remember dancing up there for a while. I vaguely remember the cab ride back to the Upper East Side riding with the window down. I vaguely remember my friend taking my boots off for me. You guys, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been drunk in my life. I can count on one hand with fingers missing how many times I've been hungover. And I woke up with the worst hangover I'd ever had in my life on the couch in the office of Icon. If you move to the couch, the floor beneath it is where it was physically assembled. And I would spend the next many hours repeating the mantra, I will not throw up in the home of Icon. Did the audio just glitch? That's weird. Hope it didn't impact anything important. November 2018, New Orleans, Louisiana. I stayed in a boutique hotel in the French Quarter and a hotel downtown that was previously a bank. I traveled by plane, taxi, rideshare, streetcar, steamboat, horse-drawn carriage, and on foot. I traveled with a friend. Miles traveled 976. Sorry to disappoint, but I didn't drink my way through New Orleans. I ate my way through New Orleans.
beignets and cafe au lait at Café du Monde every single morning, Sunday jazz brunch at Court of Two Sisters, lunch at Commander's Palace, dinner at Antoine's, not in the same day. Oh yeah, this is my eat, pray, love. Just not an equal thirds. New Orleans came to be because I was looking at my first Thanksgiving with a child-sharing arrangement post-divorce, and I wanted nothing to do with decades-old traditions in this new family dynamic. So this year, as it comes to be, is still a series of one-offs, right? There's no plan here. Being in New Orleans the week of Thanksgiving required a combination of rigorous planning and go with the flow, but... It was a twofer because it came with a sneak peek of Christmas in New Orleans. I had Thanksgiving dinner in a restaurant for the first time in my life, and y'all, I'm a fan. I stayed in two different hotels. No place had complete availability for the holiday, but I started in the French Quarter in Le Richelieu, where my parents had stayed 45 years earlier for their first anniversary. And I brought with me the things my mom had saved, a brochure, their room receipt. I found a staff member who was really jazzed about the slice of history and made photocopies and shared in my excitement, which helped balance my non-excitement when we took the ghost tour of the French Quarter and the hotel was on it. But to be fair, like, I mean, shouldn't they do like anti-ghost tours? Like what's not haunted in New Orleans? It would be a really short tour. And yet I would have to wait two months for my own ghost encounters. December 2018, Fairbanks, Alaska. I stayed in a hotel in Fairbanks for one night, a hotel in Seattle for a few hours, and the rest of the time in a private climate-controlled dome with an acrylic ceiling, 30 miles north of Fairbanks, near the White Mountains. I traveled by plane, taxi, shuttle van, dog sled, and on snow-booted foot. I traveled with a friend. Miles traveled, 8,166. I'd taken a friend with me to New Orleans, and we had a shared bucket list item of seeing the Northern Lights. Now, for the first time in my life, I have the travel triumvirate. Health, time, and money. What if that never happens again? So I contacted a travel agent to assist with the booking, and they wouldn't do it because they don't like to traffic in variables, and seeing the Northern Lights is never guaranteed. So I said, okay, uh, in your informed opinion, where in the world would I have the best chance of seeing them? And she said, honestly, Alaska. So I did some searching on the internet. I found this place called Borealis Base Camp. It's a compound of nine climate-controlled domes with acrylic ceilings where you could watch the auroras and meteor showers lying in bed, plus a full bathroom, kitchenette, a little deck. There was a common yurt with an executive chef, a large fire pit, opportunities to go mushing with Iditarod dogs, day trips to North Pole and Fairbanks, and I found them in their first season and booked a four-day, three-night stay. Good luck doing that now. Every Instagram influencer on the planet has been there. So on the flight from Seattle to Fairbanks, I start to feel twinges of regret. I heard the voice of that travel agent reminding me that the Northern Lights are a phenomenon, not guarantees. It's possible that I will see them, but am I prepared to be disappointed? Can I afford it? Can I justify it? So I turned my head to brood preemptively out of the plane window And we are literally flying eye level with the auroras. I said, you win this time. Possibility. My friend and I made friends with the executive chef. And on our last night, the three of us were outside chatting about the sky conditions, chef's amazing food. When for reasons I still don't know, they each wandered off, leaving me alone. And it was while I was alone that the auroras began. There had been a singular 
gray band across the sky for quite some time, like a gray sinewy rainbow. And suddenly it was as if someone had lit a gasoline fire at its base. This intense, swirling oval formed at the horizon line, intensifying by the minute, and it seemed to spread its fire through the skywide band. In less than ten minutes, the band had become engulfed and split into undulating waveforms overhead. The auroras lasted for hours that night, changing too rapidly to track. We'd seen them every night, but it was as if the auroras said, Oh, you think you've seen us? You haven't seen anything yet. It was extraordinary. And now I have a plan. I've been somewhere every month for four months. Why not make it a year? January 2019. Key West, Florida. I stayed in an historic, haunted, inn, two blocks off Duval Street. I traveled by ferry, bus, and on foot. I traveled alone, excepting the ghost. Miles traveled, 356. Portions of the previous travels were alone, But for the most part, I had been traveling with friends, and it's wonderful and enlightening, but it is by its nature shared, right? Co-authored. And after the auroras, I wanted more experiences that were completely my own and to be truly comfortable alone. Because see, New Year's Eve into 2019, I was unattached for the first time since I was 17 years old. Who am I when I'm not half of a partnership? And so I had a pretty seamless way to do a January trip, fit it into my work schedule, go someplace I'd never been before, and do it alone. I was in Naples, Florida doing a show, and I stayed on for a benefit concert that ended my work week on a Friday. So I thought, I'll just drive to Fort Myers, take the ferry to Key West for two nights, and then drive home on Monday like I normally would. I believe I had two ghost encounters in Key West, one of which you can read about in the book. The other... Okay, so... I had been out exploring, and I found a theater down by the docks with a big marquee that said A Doll's House Part 2. Great! I go all... I get all dressed up, I come back to the theater. There's no performance happening that night, with no explanation. And as I'm standing there... It starts to rain. So I'm looking around and parked just up the street is a ghost tour trolley. So I run over. I say, is it too late to join the tour? I pay and I take a seat. No idea what to expect. No idea what's included. Nothing. Totally spontaneous because there was no performance of A Doll's House Part 2. The tour takes us to the East Martello Museum, which houses Robert the doll. If you are into this sort of thing, Robert the doll is a bit of a legend of the demonic doll trope. Empty, dark, and rainy, the atmosphere was genuinely creepy. And that doll is genuinely creepy. The guide tells us we're allowed to photograph Robert if we approach him humbly introduce ourselves, ask his permission, thank him after, and make a donation to the museum. I am game. I'll do all these things. I don't have my camera because I thought I was going to the theater, but I have my phone. On the walls all around this doll are letters people have sent to Robert begging for his forgiveness because they believe they were cursed after neglecting to follow protocol. I approach, humbly. Hello, Robert. My name is Becca. Would it be all right if I took your photo? Thank you most sincerely, donation. The tour continues, concludes. I go back to the hotel. 
The next day, I'm out exploring with my camera and my phone, and my camera malfunctions. It is doing things it has never done before. I'm troubleshooting it every way I know how. Nothing is working. Until I remember things I've heard about spirits and electronics. And I get the idea to delete the photos of Robert off my phone. And I do. And my camera starts working again. Chicago, Illinois. I stayed in a hotel in River North off the Magnificent Mile. I traveled by plane, public transit, taxi, and on foot. I traveled alone. Miles traveled, 1,994. Chicago was bargain basement travel for me. I just got all this cold weather gear for Alaska. I got my hotel on Groupon for 40 bucks a night because it was a hotel in Chicago in February. My plane ticket was dirt cheap because it was a plane taking people to Chicago in February. But none of this matters to me. I lived there over several Februaries on purpose. But I was never there alone, and I was never there with money. So, for these few days, in my purple puffy coat, I was a character in my own life story, imagining what it would be like to be there and be rich funny thing about Becca's rich person fantasies, they come from someone who has never been rich. It means high tea, 4-1 at the Russian tea room. It means if it's too cold to wait for the bus, hail a cab. I went into Burberry with the intention of buying a scarf, saw the price, walked right back out knowing I'm perfectly capable of knitting myself a scarf. But I did do one fantastical, extravagant thing. On my last night, I went to the Signature Lounge in the Hancock Building. So the Hancock Building is the smaller of the two most iconic buildings in the Chicago skyline. And I was an office temp in it until I gave birth to my daughter in 2008 at a hospital just a few blocks away. The Signature Lounge is the bar on the 96th floor. Floor-to-ceiling windows on all sides. Stunning city views where you take your out-of-town visitors. So I'm waiting in line by myself behind this mixed group of people who are all in town for a conference. So these two people already knew each other. They had just met these two people and this person. That They're all going out to socialize over drinks, and they invited me to join them. We had nothing in common. I don't remember what the conference was for, but it was something I had no working knowledge of. But I enjoyed listening in. I enjoyed being the most sober person at the table, because in no more New Yorks. And I enjoyed being present, just right where I was in the moment. And when I could tell that things were winding down, I excused myself from the table, found a server, secretly paid the tab for the entire group, and just left. At an art market in Georgia a few months ago, a woman picked up my book, and as she did, I smile and do my spiel. She leafed past a few pages and said, So, what, you just put a hold on life? Drippingly sardonic, unrelentingly derisive. And while I was quick to say, no, no, I did two full productions during that time, trips varied in length based on my availability, like... It shook me to my core, because it could. Because three years ago, that day, that exact actual day, I was in New York City for my July trip with my new boyfriend, having a pre-show meal in Times Square before taking him to his first Broadway show, which we'd watch from the 15th Row Center. And there I was in the parking lot of a brewery outside of Atlanta, reeking of sweat from setting up a tent of my wares in oppressive heat, praying that we would sell enough for a tank of gas and a trip to the grocery store. 
So there's a valid question. If I knew then what my life would be like now, would I still have done it? Hold that thought. March 2019. London, England. Stonehenge, England. Paris, France. Normandy, France. Le Havre, Villequier. I stayed in a bed and breakfast in London's Bloomsbury, a privately owned chateau in Normandy, and a hotel in Gatwick Airport. I traveled by plane, taxi, public transit, high-speed rail, train, sightseeing bus, boat, privately owned car, carousel horse, and on foot. I traveled with my daughter, age 10. Miles traveled, 9,664. My daughter and I are going to embark on a massive travel experience as part of this year. But first, I took my daughter's spring break as an opportunity for an international warm-up before our big summer adventure to the other side of the globe. She already had a passport, and she had already traveled to London and Paris, but she was five then and accompanied by four adults. For this trip, I repeated many aspects of the one I'd just taken in September, with the additions of a day trip to Stonehenge and a full day in Paris before heading to the Chateau in Le Havre. Stonehenge likely saved the English portion of the trip for my daughter. London started out overwhelmingly, which I tried to mitigate by getting us off the crowded street and into a taxi. But as one of her Gryffindor mittens disappeared forever when that taxi drove away, I believe I want to go home was uttered more than once within our first 24 hours on English soil. But our beautiful spring day at Stonehenge righted the ship and we sailed into the French portion of the trip renewed. Chateau life suited her just fine. And aside from an incident of complete ten-year-old humiliation as she witnessed her mother being castigated in French for attempting self-service in a bakery, our time in Normandy was quite pleasant. This trip had two Parises. The first Paris was our arrival day. I, with my embarrassingly rudimentary facility for the language, considered getting us from Gerdenor successfully onto an open-top tour bus, sightseeing, fed, and onto the correct train to La Havre, a day of tremendous victory. The second Paris was our departure day. The French, projecting their opposition to Brexit, purposefully jammed border control, and what had been a 15-minute breeze at the Eurostar station in London was a five-hour Parisian hellscape, complete with ten-year-old meltdowns and macaron bribery. Our day of tremendous victory included eating crepes in a cafe and riding a river taxi on the Seine. The open-top tour bus whisked us past many major landmarks, some of which I'd never seen before. While my daughter had ridden the carousel under the Eiffel Tower during the last trip, I had not, opting instead to photograph her doing so. We returned there, and this time I rode it alongside her. Nearby, as a sidewalk vendor was gathering his wares for his end of day, he dropped a small pink Eiffel Tower keychain, which my daughter picked up and tried to return to him. He very kindly gifted it to her. One of my favorite photos of her was taken in front of the Eiffel Tower when she was five, and now it has a favorite companion, her 10-year-old Eiffel Tower selfie. April 2019, St. Augustine, Florida. I stayed in a Victorian bed and breakfast on Avenida Menendez. I traveled by privately owned car, sightseeing trolley, schooner, and on foot. I traveled with a man I'd met two months prior. Miles traveled, 420. Right before I flew to Chicago for my February trip, I'd met this guy. We knew of each other's existence in the most 21st century way possible. So contacts he made at a networking event triggered a social media algorithm that suggested perhaps he knew me too. And he friend requested me because he thought I was pretty and I accepted because I thought he was cute. We'd been social media acquaintances for like three months, during which time I was increasingly amused by his sense of humor aware that our principles aligned, 
and really impressed with his artistry. I found this guy from social media compelling, so I asked him out for coffee. And then there's a second date on the books, and a thing is happening. But here I am in the midst of my thing. But I think I really like him. But I still need to solidify my travel plans for April, July, and August. Now, April's trip had to be very brief and close by, because I was in performances in Florida, and the trip had to fit into my actor weekend of a Monday-Tuesday. Well, I knew if this guy and I didn't travel well together, it wasn't going to work out. And if it wasn't going to work out, I wasn't going to invest the time. So I suggested that he join me for a short trip. And at the end of April, this guy and I drove three and a half hours to St. Augustine. Spoiler alert, it worked out. May 2019, Las Vegas, Nevada. I stayed in a hotel on the Strip. I traveled by plane, privately owned car, rideshare, taxi, monorail, and on foot. I traveled with my mom and sister. It was our first trip, just the three of us. Miles traveled 3,968. Surprisingly, I had never been to Las Vegas. I lived in Reno for a few months when my daughter was five, performing in a casino showroom and taking full advantage of our proximity to Lake Tahoe, but I'd never made it south to Sin City. It wouldn't have been an ideal time then. I knew from experience keeping a five-year-old from touching slot machines required extreme and exhausting vigilance. Perhaps also surprisingly, the inclusion of Las Vegas in this year was not to achieve the triple crown of American hedonism shared with New Orleans and Key West. It was to take my mom. My mom was turning 70, and she is a lifelong Beatles fan. She saw them live three times, including at Shea Stadium. The Cirque du Soleil show The Beatles' Love playing at the Mirage was something that interested her greatly, but she wasn't going to fly herself out to Vegas to see it. So I conspired with my sister to take her there. We had never traveled, just the three of us McCoy girls. My mom had dear friends who lived in Las Vegas, and they very generously provided some transportation and guidance. I booked us a room in the Mirage itself, because this was all being done as a surprise, and I thought if she abhors the idea of Vegas except for the show, we could literally access the performance in an elevator trip. But that needn't have been a concern. She loved every minute of it from an after-dark tour at the Neon Museum, to a birthday dinner at Binion's in Old Vegas, to casino hopping for some midnight slots. One of my close friends was in a new show, and he arranged tickets for us, which was a highlight for me because it never, ever gets old to see your friends succeed. What happened in Vegas happily stayed with me. June 2019. Cairns, Australia. Melbourne, Australia, Alice Springs, Australia, Uluru, Australia, Sydney, Australia, Christchurch, New Zealand, Franz Joseph, New Zealand, Ayaraki, Mount Cook, New Zealand, Queenstown, New Zealand. I stayed in a total of nine hotels arranged by the tour company. I traveled by plane, so many hours in planes, hired car, tour bus, shuttle van, Taxi, boat, skyrail, train, ATV, hot air balloon, on foot, and in swim fins. I traveled with my daughter, age 11. Miles traveled, 17,717. I wasn't the only one experiencing a lot of upheaval through the life changes of 2017, 2018. Obviously, so was my daughter. A truly special creature, she has always seemed simultaneously unbreakable and delicate. She's a wise and empathetic soul, a sponge for knowledge with an uncorrupted capacity for wonder. Tenacious and adaptable, she could and would come through these changes and thrive, but her not having chosen them for herself was a reality I needed to honor. 
I asked her if she could go anywhere or do anything. What or where would it be? She said she wanted to go to Australia. I said, done. Traveling to Australia is a substantial journey. To get from our home in Florida to our hotel door in Cairns took five flights and 42 hours. It only makes sense that once you get there, you do absolutely everything you can manage, trying to depart without regrets. But going to Australia is the equivalent of going to the United States. It is a massive and varied country. Visiting Cairns, Melbourne, Alice Springs, and Sydney in the span of 10 days required traveling between each by plane. Cairns to Melbourne, for example, is about 1,800 miles, which is comparable from traveling from New York to Montana. I mean, <laughs> I don't even really know how to approach telling the stories of Australia and New Zealand because it is so dense. I spent, what, five minutes recounting a drunken eight hours in New York City? This is 26 days on the other side of the planet, you guys. In my first 72 hours, I hugged a koala, snorkeled in the Great Barrier Reef, rode a sky rail over the rainforest, watched a flying fox bat colony, and saw roughly six bajillion rainbows. Then in my next 72 hours, I flew the equivalent of New York to Montana, watched the little penguins emerge from the sea, flew the equivalent of Tennessee to Massachusetts, and landed in the outback. Then in my next 72 hours, I hot air ballooned over the outback, stargazed the Milky Way, flew the equivalent of Colorado to Alabama, and took a cruise in Sydney Harbor. And then we went to New Zealand, and in my first 72 hours... <laughs> just kidding. You know, going through an experience like this, this year, capital Y, a conscious exercise. There's a difference between memory and recollection. So recollection is the facts of an event. And I recall those facts because they made an impact or I have photographs to reference. I saved my itineraries. I've repeated the stories in years since. But memory is the relationship to those facts. And as with all relationships, they will change, as I do, as my life and perspective does. I want to read you this passage from New Zealand. Teaching moments can come at the most unexpected times. My daughter and I had one while staying near the Franz Joseph Glacier. Walking distance from the hotel were glowworm caves. I had my low-light lens from Alaska, excitement for this adventure, and an 11-year-old. It's happening. Except, to reach the entrance of the cave, you had to walk in pitch-black woods, with only whatever source of illumination you brought with you to guide the way. And I had a smartphone, a map roughly drawn by a hotel concierge, and an 11-year-old who is afraid of the dark. It's not happening. Back at the hotel, I was struggling to mask obvious disappointment, and she was in tears. I said, you feel afraid because you assume the stuff you can't see will turn out to be bad. But what if the stuff you can't see turns out to be wonderful? That's a life lesson I've learned, and I hope she will too, because it has netted me the most phenomenal results. That girl's mama had the audacity to think she knew stuff. I recall that event, but my relationship with it has changed. I was a confident person then. Balanced perfectly atop Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramids self-actualizing all over the globe. When my chips were down, when the pandemic set in motion events that changed my life completely. I wish I could tell you that I held on to that mantra and I marched boldly and confidently in the direction of what I couldn't see, convinced it would be wonderful. I did not. We could have gone to the glowworm caves if we just had a flashlight. We needed a tool to augment our perspective. When there was suddenly so much that I couldn't see, 
Where were my tools? July 2019, Part 1, Nandi, Fiji. In Fiji, I stayed in a resort still in its soft opening. I traveled by plane, tour bus, shuttle van, taxi, boat, swim fins, and on foot. I traveled with my daughter, age 11. Miles traveled 11,232. The component of the tour over which we had the most control was Fiji. After dense and prescribed itineraries in Australia and New Zealand, this part of the trip was a deep exhale before boarding the long flights home. Fiji is a collection of some 300 islands, only a third of which are inhabited. We spent our time in Nandi, on the main island of Vitilivu, and while it would have been easy to stay isolated, I wanted my daughter to have the opportunity to interact with Fijians outside of the resort. I took her into Nandi Town, which is multicultural, alive, and gritty. While there, we went to the largest Hindu temple in the Southern Hemisphere, where she attracted a feline escort. Our shared highlight was the day cruise to Tavua Island, where snorkeling was a less stressful and more rewarding experience than in the Great Barrier Reef. Then I let her have some well-earned independence after nearly a month in hotel rooms with her mother, watching from the shore as she paddleboarded alone into the South Pacific Ocean. July 2019, Part 2, New York City, New York. In New York City, I stayed at a residence club on the Upper West Side. I traveled by plane, taxi, public transit, and on foot. I traveled with the man from the April trip, who at this point is officially my boyfriend. Miles traveled 1,010. Being in Australia in June, I missed celebrating my new fellow's birthday in person, so I decided to make it up to him by taking him on his first trip to New York City. If you have the opportunity to take someone on their first trip to New York City, I highly recommend it. We did the expected things. His first Broadway show, selfies in Times Square, hailing a cab, buck 50 pizza... And we did unexpected things. We ran into someone I know randomly on the street. We took sketch pads to a diner and had cheesecake at midnight. And we had the most incredible day at 30 Rock. After attending a taping of our favorite late night show, we got an after hours tour with a friend who worked there. I mean floor to floor, like we owned the joint. I stood on Fallon's monologue mark. I sat in dressing rooms. I touched Lester Holt's door. And for this late-night junkie, I got the thrill of a lifetime running all over Studio 8H, the home of Saturday Night Live. Growing up, Saturday Night Live represented a career milestone, a success marker, specifically hosting it. I used to practice voices, create characters, Reenact sketches. Superstar. New York was always central to my dreams, and it had eluded me. And if I'm being honest, I thought the work I was doing at the beginning of this year was going to lead to something. You know, the pieces were finally falling into place for me. And then in 2020, my relationship with the industry changed. But... What wonders revealed themselves to me? What magic did I find in the mundane because I was guided by a belief in possibility? August 2019, Bangkok, Thailand. I used to- I'll do this. Sorry. August 2019, Bangkok, Thailand, Ayutthaya, Thailand, Sukhothai, Thailand, Chiang Rai, Thailand, Chiang Mai, Thailand, Taki Lake, Myanmar. I stayed in a total of six hotels arranged by the tour company. I traveled by plane, hired car, taxi, tour bus, shuttle van, boat, ratang, tuk-tuk, and on foot. I traveled alone. Miles traveled 22,000. For comparison, 
the circumference of the Earth is 24,901 miles. My total miles traveled over the course of this year were 86,734, which is circumnavigating the Earth approximately three and a half times. I told my partner, Justin, that statistic while we were in lockdown, and he said, no wonder you're bored. While this year did not begin by design, it definitely ended that way. And how I wanted to end it was a decision made with rigorous consideration, where I went and the fact that I was alone. If you've never traveled alone, I think you should. Especially if you can board a metal tube, close your eyes for several hours and emerge by yourself in a place where people don't look like you and don't speak the language you speak, you will be forever changed. The United States is 4% of the world's population. I'm speaking to you in one of over 7,000 languages spoken on this planet. Our way of life is not necessarily the best way. It's simply a way. And knowing that intellectually and experiencing it viscerally are two different things. I was humbled repeatedly in Thailand. In Bangkok, I went exploring one morning and found a street market setting up, which I watched and photographed. And then I spotted a monk and I remembered it was customary to feed the monks. So I bought a bag of food and I took it to him. But it isn't simply a handout or a kind gesture. Like There's a ritual involved, which I had no knowledge of and was suddenly very aware that I was ignorant in this exchange and concerned that I would do something offensive or disrespectful. Across the street, there was a man leaning against a tree, smoking a cigarette, who saw me struggling. In three life bounds, he crossed the street, assisted me in completing the ritual, and returned to his spot without any pleasantries or expectations. From Chiang Rai, I did the land crossing into Myanmar. Literal feet of distance represent different life experiences for people, depending simply on what side of a line in the sand they happen to be born on. I walked through a wet market, which was stunning then and became even more so with the events of the world stage a few months later. I remember the thick smell of gasoline from the tuk-tuks, children and dogs playing in the streets, and how kind people were to me simply from my leading with a smile and an attempt to engage in their language. And I remember getting this glimpse into their domesticity and not pitying them for lacking the trappings of American life, but rather pitying us for how complicated and individualized we believe life has to be. In Chiang Mai, I had two vastly different animal encounters, both of which were humbling in different ways. The first was a day at an elephant sanctuary, a true sanctuary. So the resident elephants are rescues from abusive or exploitive situations where they were domestic animals that could no longer be cared for or afforded. And we were there as eco-tourists. So we pay a fee that helps the operational costs of the facility, but we also provide labor for the elephant's daily care. And it was unbelievable to interact with these animals in this way. I bonded with a grandma elephant who came to the sanctuary because she had outlived her caregiver. Mostly blind, her mahout said she walks the grounds in search of her owner and cries. And the next day, I went to a tiger enclosure. The kind where they breed the tigers in captivity, take them from the mothers at birth to hand-rear them, use whatever means they use to make it safe for a human being to get into an enclosure with an apex predator for photo ops. Was it mind-blowing to be that close to tigers? Yeah. I was in an enclosure with four juveniles, meaning at some point there was always a tiger behind me. 
and at one point, one of them plopped down in front of me and exposed its belly, and the handler said it wants you to rub its belly, and I know better than to rub a house cat's belly, but I did it. And I lived to tell the tale, and it was pretty incredible, and that tiger is not to blame for its circumstances, but I am sorry that I patronized that establishment, and that has stayed with me. At what point does feeling sorry about something tip into regret? So what is regret? If recollection is the facts of an event, and memory is the relationship with those facts, Regret is when that relationship is negative. You can regret things you did. You can also regret things you didn't do. Regret can be a powerful tool for human beings to augment our perspective. But it's a slippery slope when you're in crisis. Midlife. Existential. I think about Thailand at least a couple times a week, especially Grandma Elephant, blind and displaced, mourning her old life. The flight home from Thailand meant my year was over, and during the flight, I tried to put into words what I had done. I had set a goal and completed it. I had experienced new things in the moment which were shared with people I love. I found beauty everywhere I went. I felt truly alive and connected. And yet, sadly, I wasn't allowing myself to rest in the stillness of accomplishment. I was putting pressure on myself to make this year something important. I was scribbling away, needing to answer a seemingly pressing now-what as if the merit of the accomplishment depended on it. So, Becca, now what? I have no idea. I told you I don't transition between things particularly gracefully. I got back from Thailand and resumed normal life. I moved back to Chicago. I started rehearsals. And I was pretty sure... I knew exactly where my life was heading. Didn't have once-in-a-century pandemic on the, as they say, bingo card. But this time, I shared my life-changing event with everyone on the planet. Right now, all of us are navigating a state of now what? Because the pandemic created a before, a time that is no longer, and we are in the space between the no longer and the not yet. But it's in that space where possibility lives. I am so grateful that I couldn't see what was coming next. Because if I knew then what my life would be like now, I might not have done it. And here's the thing. It was something important. There's no version of now where none of that happened. You want to know a secret no one tells you about the Northern Lights? Not everyone can see the colors with just their eyes. I'm one of the ones who can only see swirls of gray. I needed my camera, a tool to augment my perspective. And it turns out, the stuff we can't see is wonderful. This has been a podcast version of The Year of Extraordinary Travel, adapted for Atlanta Fringe Audio by Becca McCoy. 
Sound designed and produced by Rachel Harrison. The Year of Extraordinary Travel was published in 2021 by St. Petersburg Press with a world premiere stage production at Studio Grand Central in 2022. For copies of the book or to inquire about booking the show, visit beccamccoy.com. We would like to thank our Atlanta Fringe audio sponsor, Could Be Pretty Cool, a production company whose mission is to inspire community building through the arts. You can binge all of our audio shows at atlantafringe.org slash fringe dash audio or wherever you enjoy your podcasts.